panel. So if I can have the following people come up, please. Demaria Gibson. Darius. Alton Williams. Nishayla oh. uh, Gibson. And Teresa Bailey. The Barely. <laughs> Okay, so if you could all, camera right here. If you could all, from Teresa. Oh, sorry. One thing. No. Can we all have you all use the microphone for recording purposes? So we try to make this on fleek. Okay. Okay. So from Teresa down, if you could all. Pick up the microphone and introduce yourselves and what you do. My name is Teresa Baker and I work, first of all, I want to acknowledge the land we're on, um, the Ohlone land that we are on. Um, I work on efforts of diversity and inclusion in the outdoors. I engage communities of color in outdoor spaces across the country. I work with the National Park Service, Latino outdoors, Native outdoors, various affinity groups across the country to engage communities of color in outdoor spaces. Um, peace, peace, peace. My name is Demarion Gibson. Um, I am an author, a poet, um, and I work for the city of Oakland for their libraries. Um, and I bridge together, I usually bridge together art with social justice things. Um, I'm actually going to be working with incarcerated youth pretty soon, um, bringing poetry programs to them for Camp Sweeney with the Alameda County Library, um, and also substitute teaching. And uh, I publish my own books. I have a small business where I independently press up my books and distribute them via my website and like local business stores. Um, I won an award from the Academy of American Poets, and uh, I, yeah, I just do art and social justice stuff, that's what I prefer to do, so. Hi, I'm Shayla Gibson. I'm a founding team member and head of HR and diversity and equity at Caliber Schools in Richmond. Um, we have two charter schools, kindergarten through eighth grade, and I work a lot on diversity and just making sure that our staff and the students are treated fairly and that there's no disproportionate amounts of students being sent to suspension and things like that, which we see going on a lot. And I'm also the founder of SHIFT, um, and we offer counseling, financial literacy, and support services to women going through different kinds of shifts in their life. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Alton Williams. Uh, I teach in the Criminal Justice Department at Sac State. I'm also uh, work for a program called Project Rebound on Sac State campus, and it's a campus-based reentry program. And essentially, what we do is uh, provide wraparound services for folks that are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. We try to help reduce recidivism through education. Um, and we do a lot of advocacy work in terms of like going to the state capitol and trying to legislate for certain laws to be passed that will benefit folks that have that target on their back of having a felony. Um, and that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all. Hey. Um, 
My name is Darius Simpson, and I got the short end of the cord. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, you're good. <laughs> I'm a teaching artist and spoken word person. Um, I teach spoken word at Oakland School for the Arts. I do workshops all over the Bay, um, which means that I just really enjoy doing things with words, <laughs> essentially. Um, yeah, I facilitate spaces where folks uh, ask questions of each other and not leave with an answers, but better questions for themselves and for each other. And yeah, that's it. So going down the line, I just wanted to ask which life event helped you through your resilience define yourself? spoken word is a huge part of my resilience and I, what like the life moment that like brought poetry officially into my life was in fourth grade uh, we had a poetry unit and I was a fourth grade class clown and I got an ailments project and that was strange so my teacher called in my mom and was like yo this is amazing make sure he keeps doing this thing um, so my mom continued various ways to make sure I went on the page when I didn't necessarily want to um, but it like yeah it helped shape and like keep me, yeah, the end, I think. Yeah, poetry, it wasn't something I chose, but like that life moment brought it um, into me and it's been with me since then. Um, and even when I was using it for that resilience, I didn't know it was resilience. I was just writing because I felt and I needed right. to get something out. And like, if I hadn't got that out, I don't know what would have happened um, in my body. <laughs> the end. Can you repeat the question for me? Uh, what life event? help define you. So if it's a, oh. a message of a yeah. time of resilience or what like, Okay, like, I understand. Um, I would say for me, honestly, the last time I uh, was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, from that moment on, I mean, I kind of, my faith took over and I decided to make a different choice in my life. And so that was like a defining moment for me. Um, and so, you know, since then, uh, I've, I've been on the straight and narrow. Nice. Yeah. Um, for me, I would definitely say sometimes it's really hard to make decisions out of integrity, but it would be leaving a religion that I was raised in, and that means maybe losing all of your family, friends, everything. But um, as a mom, you want to make decisions that your your children can see that you stood in, in integrity. And that could be really hard, but that was one of the best decisions and a life-changing one. Um, I think that really, like, life itself is, like, filled with life-defining moments. Like, I, like I've had life-defining moments this year, so I think there's, like, plenty of things that you continuously will draw information from, like, the further and further you live your life um like one of the earliest things i think for me was just like my mom reading books to me when i was a kid and then like just becoming enthralled with it and then like for me like i think that writing allows me to materialize my thoughts a lot better so like when there was things going on in my house or things that 
was going on around me in my community or with family and stuff that I couldn't really like materialize the thoughts for like I would write it down and it would it would make more sense to me but in terms of like life defining moments I think that like as you get older you will continue to have life defining moments and it, it just continues there's things that you will continuously learn and continuously draw inspiration from like you know what I'm saying so yeah For me, there wasn't one particular moment. I, I love being outdoors, and, and nature has always been my cathedral, my serenity. And after a trip to Yosemite, spent a week in Yosemite, and I did not see one other person that looked like me. And that spoke volume to me, because knowing the history that's in Yosemite, like Buffalo Soldiers being the very first rangers in Yosemite, and not seeing people that represented that angered me. So that got me into working around issues of diversity and inclusion in the outdoors, calling out government agencies on why this is, um, reaching out to community organizations, working with them, speaking to them, understanding that all this land is stolen. Mm -hmm. And for it not to be recognized by government agencies and affinity groups, bothered me so it is my responsibility as a person of color to change that okay so I'm going to ask this question and I want it to be answered in the specific order so uh, mr. Williams especially as a fan of project rebound in its 50th anniversary miss um, Shayla as somebody who needed everything shift has right now as a young person and Sister Teresa, who, who you know, I like to look outside. Um, and then also as, <laughs> and also the people who deal with you as teachers who have to influence young people. So my question is, what do you think about your line of work encourages the resilience of the people that you, are affect, that you affect every day? So we can start with Mr. Williams. One more time for me. So what do you do? <laughs> so, uh, so what do you do in your job, and how do you come about your job mm -hmm. to help resilience and the people that you engage in? Because we know that Project Rebound it has a history and a tradition of having people come through their resilience in a prosperous way. Mm -hmm. So how do you come across that from your angle of vision to promote that from from your line of work? Uh, yeah. Um, for me, it's like uh, a passion in, in that being directly and indirectly uh, affected by the system, the criminal justice system. Um, it, it informs me in that I want to help folks transcend their situation, understand that the world is bigger than what they may think it, it was or is. Um, I think that's very important, not necessarily to change uh, their actions, right, but to change how they think about their actions, right, because I think it starts in the mind. And so once you change how you think, then your actions will follow. And so I try to uh, help them through that resistance in that way, and then also just to get that confidence back. I think it's important uh, oftentimes for folks that are, are fresh out um, to just lack um, confidence or belief in themselves. And so I think Education is an avenue or a vessel uh, for some that can help them do that. 
and right. And so, um, and I think it's important to not just help folks on the back end. What I mean by that is folks that are coming out, but also on the front end and trying to help, um, you know, folks in our youth, especially before they even uh, enter the system. Uh, there's so many consequences that come with that for your life course uh, once, you, once you are released. And so, yeah, I think I answered the question. I hope I did. You did great. <laughs> um, this one I'll answer as my work at Caliber Schools. And that is, so I was the first person there that helped start the schools, and there's about 200 people now, and I'm the only woman of color. Um, everyone in the executive team is from Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and I'm not. I didn't go to college at all. I went to University of Phoenix when I got older in my 30s, but that can be really intimidating because I did not have that background. I wasn't raised like that. So now that we have so many employees and a lot of our employees are teachers' aides or secretaries or janitors, and they, though, that's our staff of color. So they come to me a lot like, okay, how did you get there and what did you do? How did you overcome? How are you sitting with these people and feeling okay? And I'm just talking to them about, you know, it's okay. Just know to stand up for yourself, know to speak up for yourself even if your voice is shaking you say something and then you're helping with the next person so that's been really encouraging because people do feel comfortable coming to talk to me about situations at their job where there something happened over the weekend like they might have got pulled over and falsely accused of something so how do they show up at work how are they resilient on Monday when something really bad just happened over the weekend how do we overcome that how do we talk to people at staff and get and get through and help people understand and help them get resilient from bouncing back from short-term things on top of all the trauma they've already gone through um, through their life. So that's been pretty helpful. I think my approach is a little different than most people here. Um, my, my work and the message that I try to get across to people is that, you know, as, as people of color, we have a responsibility to the land. Um, that is what's most important to me. And when you look at what's happening, um, climate change, the floods that are happening, the fires that are happening, that will continue to affect us until we start to do something. And as people of color, we are missing from that conversation. And we may not understand how that fits into our life right now, but think about your kids. Think about your grandkids. What world are we leaving to them? And all too often, as people of color, we are left out of this conversation. When you look at the National Park Service, it's 83% white. That's a 101-year-old government agency, 80-plus percent white. When you look at the Sierra Club, when you look at SCE, when you look at all of these outdoor organizations, you don't see us. You don't see us on their boards. You don't see us in positions uh, that create jobs, positions of authority. We're always in the background. We're never up front. And we need to fight for that. And that's what I try to, try to instill in younger people, is that you too have a place here. This is your land. It's not about connecting. It's about reconnecting. And I think all too often, we think we have to create something. But that's already there for us as Native Americans, as Latinos, as African Americans. This is our land, and we need to fight harder for it. Um, I think that uh, the, the question was like, how do we? You bring yourself and your levels of resilience to people who have to also have a resilient spirit. So like in, in the um, library and when you teach young people. 
I think that the main thing that I always like encourage youth to do with like things that I create or things that I incorporate in learning or with the library is to like have them ask questions. I always like try to create like things that are intuitive and allow them to like explore their identity and allow them to like kind of like ask questions. So say like um, right now I'm working on a poetry program that's writing as an act of self-care. That'll be for, for the libraries, uh, a collabor collaboration with me in the libraries for National Poetry Month next month. And um, you know, it'll be interactive and there'll be elements in which, you know, um, the the participants the live these people who come to the library every day can take things and and write write in their own ways and figure out how writing can be transformative to them so i think that um when you allow people to because uh just like Raina was saying we're all children here we all have an inner child and i think that creativity is very much an intuitive thing and very much something where you tap into your inner child energy I think that um, when you allow people to, to kind of like freely roam in that space, it allows people to think for themselves and allows people to ask questions and allows people to break outside of their boxes um, and allows people to be present with their bodies. I think that a lot of the times we, because we live in a hyper-capitalist world and we're always like, go, 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 you know, like a lot of people don't really have time to be present in their body sometimes. So I feel like with like incorporating arts into what I'm doing, um, I allow people to kind of think intuitively, or at least that's what I try to emphasize. So, yeah. You don't have to answer, but I mean, I mean, you have the mic now, so. <laughs> <laughs> the pressures of panelism. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. I can ask you a separate question, because I have, I have, have more. No, I'm gonna slide in with this one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think writing and spoken word for me is uh, all about investigation, um, a self for each individual artist, each individual student. So uh, I think through that, we're trying to find our ways out of and into these situations, just like that resiliency zone and finding out where we are, how we feel in those moments and what's happening with us. Um, so I think the work is directly related to resilience. It's all about, especially my black and, black and brown students, um, it's all about what we've been through and how we've come to the place that we are and how we move forward intentionally, um, less of survival, more of that resilient spirit and providing it with tools to keep moving and to reset and do that elastic work of resilience. So, oh, you can keep that, that's fine. Um, so my question for all of you is, what do you do when you have to go to work and you have a bad day? So what one thing of self-care do you do on that, on the when you have a bad day and you can't take the day off and you still gotta go to work? I dance on sidewalks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it's, especially if something happens like in the morning right before I have to go in. Like, and I'll have times I think I try to be horizontal when something upsets me so I can just be grounded um, and kind of like dodge it. I feel like I'm, it can't get me if I'm on the ground. Um, <laughs> but if I don't have time for that, definitely shake it out. I have a specific song I listen to. Yep. It's called I'm Here by Tunde Olinarian. It's a Michigan artist. I can play it for you if you want to hear it later. Somebody remember that he's going to play that song and then we can all dance. We'll dance together, yes. Yeah. yeah. Like I just added to the agenda, people. Okay. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> if I'm having a bad day, um, 
I don't know. I guess, you know, for us, when I say us, I mean just minorities in general, right? Um, we know that we kind of like live in two worlds, or at least for me. And so, um, you know, you have to code switch. And so, you know, when I'm at work, it's kind of like I, I turn on, right? And so uh, that's what happens. I know I have to turn it on, right? And, and, that's, and then I also feed off the energy, since I teach, I feed off the energy of my class. And that really helps me as well. And so, you know, I leave whatever I'm going through in the office or at home, and um, I, I, like my, I like to feed off my students, right? Because I feel like the energy I give off, they're gonna give back, and then that makes uh, for a better learning experience. And so I definitely uh, feed off their energy. And so if I have a boring class, it's harder to feed off <laughs> their energy if they're not engaging with me. But um, that, and then just, the ability to code switch, right? And understanding that, you know, I'm, I'm having to speak a different language and, and, and my tone and inflections is different. And so I, I kind of go into it with that mindset, you know, whether I'm having a bad day, if I'm having a bad day. Uh, particularly, I think, coming from our country, it could be some extremely harsh stuff going on. Um, but uh, you have to be, have to be resilient in that, in that regard, right? Because I, I gotta, gotta feed the family. I'll say two things. One, I carry a journal with me all the time, so if it's a lot going on, journaling for sure. Number two, I writing on your coattails of code switching. We all feel like we need to code switch, and sometimes people clerk like we have to work harder, or people are looking at us more. But one thing I do is just speak up. Today's not a good day. Like I'm in, just need some time or be in my own space, and that's okay because that gives other people permission to know you don't just have to be there and just be a robot. We're not robots. It's okay to have those feelings. You can still get your job done, but you don't have to, to put on a face. You don't have to. You don't have to do that. Like you can be you, and you can still be great. Um, I definitely want to piggyback on journaling. Um, I think that it's very important. Like I, I, there's a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And uh, she talks about like morning pages. And it's very much like a stream of consciousness exercise where you just write things. And to me, it helps clear out my mind. Like to do it early in the morning, I just like, it helps me with like just getting out whatever is on my head. And that's always something I can do, even at any time of the day, to just journal. Like you know I'm saying, if something's like bothering me or something's whatever, I can just write it out, get it out of my head. Um, something else. Uh, you know, just like breathing exercises, maybe just taking like five to ten minutes, you know, in your morning before you go out, before you go out into all the noise and all the people talking and all the stuff you have to deal with and all of the things that, all the assignments for the day. Just taking like five to ten minutes and, you know, just breathing, breathing deeply. You know what I mean? Um, Erica Huggins from the Black Panthers, she was the person who introduced me to that. And um, it tends to be very helpful. Um, and also definitely, you know, I I definitely uh, feel like it's important to let people know, like I'm saying, like, you know, if someone's like, how are you? Just be like, I'm okay. Or I'm, you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to necessarily perform, like, happiness to perform your duties. You know I'm saying you can be honest and be like, you know, I'm okay. You know what I mean? Or whatever. But you, you know what I mean? But you're working through the day. So, yeah. For me, when I'm having a bad day, I call on my ancestors. I, I, I remember who they were and who they are through me. Um, and I take to social media 
and, and I um what what okay. if my family could just chill for a second, they are problematic. Um, most of my frustration comes from the work I do. So if there's a particular agency or company that has put me in that mood, I will take to social media and call them out publicly. If it's the park services, if it's whomever, I call people out on what they're not doing. I try to, I do that so that other people see it's okay. These people aren't so far above us that they can't be called out. And for the most part, when I do that, I'm good. <laughs> you know? Because it's like, why stay frustrated at a system that you can call out and that they will be forced to respond? And more, than, more likely than not, they are responding through that. I also look up motivational quotes and read them and find myself in that. Because I think all too often that's what we are lacking when we are frustrated is motivation to get beyond the BS that's in front of us. So for me, that's what works. Thank you. So the reason why I ask is for a lot of our younger audience members because there's this myth that once you hit a certain age, you have your act together. And it is never true. And whoever told you that lied to you. And I just wanted to show you that even these people who are on this resilience panel, because they epitomize resilience, we still have to do things to make sure nobody gets hurt in our presence while we go through our day. So just understand. And then I wanted you to see all the methods that can be done that can help you go through your day, because some days are beast. And so it's a good thing to know that there are other people that are on panels that are just like you that have methods of getting through the day. So uh, three of you guys touched on this, but I do want to talk about being the person of color in a white space and how your resilience has helped that after prayer and <laughs> hoping you don't touch nobody in the chest. Their meetings because that happens to me. So what do you do as a person of color in white spaces or traditionally white spaces to not own based on your resilience to help you succeed and to at least thrive and know that you're making a difference? For me, every space belongs to me. It's not it's it's not just it's I understand how some people define some spaces as white spaces, but for me, understanding the land I'm on, this is my space, period. So I speak my mind no matter where I'm at. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from my, my family. We as a family do that. We don't hold back, and damn, I try to control it sometimes. <laughs> but, but, but it just comes out, and I don't know how to stop that. But I understand that anywhere I am, that's my space. It's my time to speak my truth to whomever I'm speaking it to. And I don't let people um, bother me. I'm trying to be nice here and, and not give the other words. But I don't, I don't let people bother me. I don't let people control who I am and what I am. I just speak my truth. And I think all too often in a society that, that has people on pedestals 
and we're told that we can't speak truth to them or we have to calm ourselves down, I don't believe in that. I believe you are no better than me, no matter your title or your position. I'm going to speak my truth, and you may not like it, and we can have a conversation to work through that, but you're no better than me based on your whiteness. Can you say that one more time, please? <laughs> that part, that last part. You can't get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying, you, I'm, I don't believe that based on your color, you're better than me. So you're not better than me because of your whiteness, period. Thank you, ma'am. Just wanted to make sure everybody got that. All right, I think um, yeah. Hmm. <sighs> Let's see. So for POC, for folks of color in, in white spaces, um, I think that there are a plethora of experiences within that because even within the POC bubble there is things like anti-blackness anti and then colorism and then proximity to whiteness that also has to be acknowledged it's like it's basically like you know um, you know if folks of color were like or even just, just people in general were like 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 plants right you have to like yes they all need water and sunlight and all these things but there's certain you have to know the specificity sometimes um, so there's a variety of different experiences that happen within that um, uh, pertaining to like where you fall within the POC spectrum, you know. So a, a more fair-skinned person will have to deal with things in opposition to whiteness, but might not have to deal with the same thing that a darker-skinned person would have to deal with, or a, um, a black person might have to deal with things in a different kind of medium that a non-black person of color would have to deal with. So I think that, um, you know, like for me as an example, um, like as a black person uh, with anti-blackness being so prevalent within mediums of information, including academia, uh, you can be in an administrative position and people will still feel like it's, it's uh, okay to, or that it's valid to question your intelligence or question your uh, qualifications even after you've shown time after time after time after time after time after time that you are qualified to be in the space and that you are qualified to show up in the space. But people will constantly, you know, uh, not just white folks, but people who want to be in proximity to whiteness will, will, will question, um, you know, your ability to do that. And I feel like it's telling and it says more about them than it does me. So I'd rather just live my truth and, you know, show up as I, as I am, you know, um, and and just do the work and show that I'm qualified to do the work and that you know that these that if I'm in the position where I'm the senior office assistant you know for a library like when I was in college I was I was senior office assistant in a college that uh, in a college library that preserved um, books on all these different uh, identities and, and cultures you know what I'm saying from folks of color queer people all these different things I was second in charge but because I was a black person there was always this assumption of certain things. So I think that, you know, you just kind of have to like not let that get into your mind and also understand that that says more about that person than it does you and in the ways in which certain things are normalized in this world. Um, so you just have to show up how you want to show up. I think, I think that's also freedom because people are talking about like diversity and inclusion and representation and I feel like I'm more interested in empowerment and also freedom and I feel like freedom, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be like <laughs> taking up too much time, but like freedom to me is like when a person, when folks can, can show up however they want to show up without being the recipient of violence or exploitation. So, you know, 
regardless of how you identify across any pers uh, perspective, uh, any spectrum or whatever, you should be able to show up as yourself. It doesn't have to, it shouldn't be something that's palatable to somebody else, you know. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's really all I want to say, so. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is just knowing that white fragility is a thing and that's not my thing. So when I'm in a space, like that's not something that I should be thinking. I should be thinking of the truth, my truth, the truth for people that I'm coming in the room to speak about. Also number two, knowing I, it would be a disservice to people if I did not speak up. So it's really a responsibility if you're, especially if you're in a place of power that you speak up and know your business, know your stuff. So you can't just talk and say, I think this, or that doesn't sound right, or it's not fair. Have your data there. So if you're somewhere and people are saying, we have an equitable company, and I'm pulling something that says, well, you know what, the black staff makes this, the Latinx staff makes this, the white staff makes that, are we equitable? It's not telling anyone anything, but it's just showing them and it's bringing it to them and then they, if you're equitable, they'll make that decision. So it's just knowing your stuff and, and not being afraid to, to speak out. Um, yeah, I think it varies for each of us because we probably in like different positions um, and situations. But for me, um, I just try to be, uh, well, I try not to be hypersensitive race because I tend to be hypersensitive and you can end up taking things the wrong way sometimes most of the time not but uh, and then also understanding that when I do express myself do it in a way in which they understand right so it's not about me uh, you know you should always speak up for yourself but sometimes it's not what you do but how you do it delivery makes a big difference so knowing your audience Right, and so, and then also, I think that helps me to dispel certain stereotypes and preconceived notions that folks may have of me because I'm a black man, right, and all the things that come with that, being angry and unapproachable, and et cetera, et cetera. And so, I have to be mindful of those things and and the way in which I present myself. So when I'm in those spaces, uh, for one, always be true to myself, and then but for two, just being mindful. Um, uh, what's going on around me, and so that's how I navigate those spaces. I think everything that I personally use has already been said, like speaking up in those moments, um, knowing exactly what it is you're trying to say, and sometimes maybe not. Sometimes you something rub you the wrong way, and that shit not okay, and you can't articulate that, and it's okay to speak out in those moments too. Like, hey, Janet, you got me fucked up. And I said, that's all you got. Like, that's, that's perfectly fine. Because what it does is throw that energy back to Janet and you don't take that home. Yeah. Um, speaking of, there was something else. I enjoy else. you. <laughs> I enjoy y'all. There was something else. Speaking out. Yeah, I think that's it. I'm going to stop. Okay, so hold on. I have, oh, I have to have the mic. Sorry. He's looking at me like, don't you? Don't you? Yeah, go ahead. You're talking about being in these spaces and a lot of places where we go, if it's companies or anything, we might be the only minority in the building, so that's why it's so important for us to create our own spaces. So it's not we're just going into something, but we're making it, and then you're opening the doors for other people. I remember what it was. Um, sometimes staying out of white spaces is a form of self-care, um, like limiting and controlling the time that you spend. Like It's perfectly normal and okay to stay away from white folks. Um, 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes like, nah, I didn't knock on, nah, like you need to, these motherfuckers crazy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and the church say, Amen. all right. <laughs> because some days, listen, okay. Some days, some days you need that sick day. Uh, so my question is, how did you, in, in your workspaces, how did you begin to, your engagement with your communities? Ms. Teresa? Yes. First of all, you don't bring up the bears. <laughs> Can you repeat that? Do not bring, so this is what Ms. Teresa did. Ms. <laughs> Teresa said, we should all go camping. This is gonna be great. There's no bears there that I know of. Oh so let's talk about black people and bears. Having a fear of bears is not an irrational thing. However, Ms. Teresa believes that we should be out there. Thank you. That is the end of the story. Can you repeat your question? How did you begin your engagement with the community? Oh, I, I connected with an Oakland-based group called Outdoor Afro. That's how I initially started engaging community, was through um, Outdoor Afro, and the founder of which is Rumap, who is from Oakland. Um, we started taking groups out on hikes and various outdoor adventures, and that started my connection with community. And once people started hearing about the work I was doing and others, people across the country started reaching out and asking if I would come know, to Wisconsin. I was in Oregon last week um, leading a hike with the Audubon Society. So it just depends on which um, platform you use. That allows people to reach out to you. Social media is big in the work I do. Uh, people find out about the work I do and they'll reach out and it, it just took off that way, making sure that I stay engaged with communities of color specifically is how word of mouth has spread about the work I do. Is that good enough? That's beautiful, right. thank you. Um, so the question is how did we start? Or, okay, um, for me. Uh, Especially you because you have publishing, you have books, you have other things um, that you do. I guess, well, in terms of like incorporating art with community or social justice things, the first thing that I did, I'm from, I'm from Vallejo, California, and um, there, my middle school art teacher had this like, uh, he had like a mural that, um, uh, where he basically just incorporated like all these artists. Like I'd always had poems or ideas for poems, but I never like completed any of them. And he was like, you wanna write a poem and put it on his wall? And you know, so me and all these artists came together and, and like painted all these different things and I painted a poem and we painted people's faces that died and all these things. Um, and it just kind of showed me like how, you know, you can kind of incorporate art and have it mean something and you can you can you can reach out to your community and actually mean something to your community. Um, and then I just kind of like started expanding that further. So like working at SF State for the Richard Oaks Multicultural Center and um, yeah, Gators. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's cool. This something else, um, but <laughs> but uh, but you know, just seeing like how important it was to um, preserve the narrative of of Black and Brown folks um, through literature, through the arts, and make sure that that's accessible 
to people um, because, you know, it just gives us access to our identity. Um, I don't know if I answered that question. You did. Okay, cool. Okay, so the answer to did I answer the question correctly is yes. I'm about to say. So there is no wrong answer. So you don't have to ask me. The answer is always going to be yes. Yes, Um Just being in the community, talking to people. When we were thinking of opening the schools, you can't just say, I think the community needs that because that's where Savior Syndrome comes in. We think you need this. It's going and asking people, what do you want? What do you think we need? What, what choice do you not have right now that should be opened up to you? And then listening and taking that input and making sure that the people that are affected are involved in the conversations. And then as far as staff, if you're somewhere where there might be a lot of white staff and there's not so many African-American staff, what do you need? What do you need to feel safe in this space? What just speaking to people, asking them and making sure they're safe spaces and then following up, going and talking to people that can make the change and follow up so then they know they are in a safe space. Um, for me, I would say, uh, I think it's two ways in which you think of that, formal and informally. And I would say on the formal census with uh, Project Rebound, uh, but informally, I think uh, me personally, just being an example to folks that look like me, or folks that are in my family, being a tangible resource to them, to my community, um, that's how I got engaged, right? And so not only am I gonna preach how to do something a certain way, but I'm gonna show you the fruits of those labors, right? And I think that's important for my niece or my nephew or whoever to be able to come to me and say, I need help filling this out or can you show me how, right? You need somebody to have paved the way Right? If it's a path, that means somebody has walked it before you. And so I think that's how one of the ways in which I engage with my community is I made a decision right, to be an example for folks. I come, I'm from West Oakland, and uh, we moved to Sacramento, but you know, same thing from West Oakland to Sacramento. But, uh, and so when I hear people you know, talk about me in a positive way, you know, I think that that's me giving back to my community or getting engaged with my community. And then on the formal side of it, just uh, Project Rebound, um, just, you know, trying to help folks uh, that were formerly and currently incarcerated, I think that's a way in which I do it to where it's like, you know, I get paid to do it. But it's, it's really a labor of love, and I would do it for free. Don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. They know. That's beautiful. But they don't pay me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they go pay me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm from Akron, Ohio, and I went to school in Michigan, and I, I've been in uh, California since it's a year and a half now. Um, my, the, I think the first time I engaged with community intentionally, not like just showing up to an action or going somewhere if my mother made me or it was some with the church or some other entity, like me actually deciding to go into a community and to actually hear the people that were in that community was in Ferguson uh, in 2014 when everything was, yeah, Michael Brown was killed. Uh, we were, my school wasn't doing anything. Um, the, the black folks from my school, the leaders, the elite of the student organizations. <laughs> uh, one of the first things they said in our gathering to decide how we should move forward was that it wasn't about race. I was like, all right, bet, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> um, and that kind of forced me into asking uh, those questions on myself and finding out who I was. So. One of the things we did, a few of us went to uh, Ferguson. We had no plan. We had no history in organizing. We didn't know anybody in Ferguson. Um, so what we had to do was to ask folks, like, what's going on here? Like, how are you navigating this? Um, and it was an interesting experience. We learned that 
like we knew more about the case and were more closely following it than the folks that were there. And I was just a trip, uh, just like where this happened and folks are still continuing to move on with their lives and not like full stop, uh, trying to make sure that this, this thing is settled. Uh, but like, yeah, and I think most of my community engagement since then has been uh, community organizing, direct actions, protests, those things. Uh, yeah, I think poetry is like the secondary thing for community because it's, yeah, it's dope and it's a way to build community and to get engaged with folks, but I think it's a little more formal, uh, different space, but yeah, poems and shutting shit down. Yeah, they won't let me. Every time I try to talk, people looking at me like, don't do it. Uh -oh. okay. I have a question for you. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Plot twist. How, how, do you, how do you show up for community? Well, I have a few things. So I have a nonprofit organization called the Mocha Autism Network in which we engage with people of color to give more information about autism. In, the, in California, only one in 10 doctors have autism assessments in Spanish, and we're California, so that's a deficit. I'm currently working with uh, the organizations Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated and Autism Speaks and the Special Needs Networks to create uh, inclusionary assessments and education for parents, pastors, and educators. That's one. And I am a student advisor at Cal State East Bay and or Hayward, depending on when you were born. <laughs> and I am a, I create, help create a mentor program at MetWest High School called MetWest Women United, which was a full year education program that received an English credit uh, for high school, Oakland high school students. I am a board member of the Museum of Children's Arts, which we are now housed, and I am a board member of the African American Female Excellence Initiative. I'm on the Policies and Commissions Board in which I write policies for the advancement of black girls in the Oakland Unified School District. I have a question, if that's okay, Ms. Teresa. Okay, so um, my question is, how important is your social media identity into helping create, helping spread your message of resilience. Mm. Because, I don't know, I have students following me on my social media, and uh, so what do you guys do if you have community leaders or people in your sphere of influence on your social media? How do you responsibly or irresponsibly, based on your day, yeah. uh, portray yourself on social media so that you are portrayed in the, um, your sphere of influence. Yeah. For me, sometimes that's difficult because I am so outspoken, but I've had organizations across the country, and most recently I had the Rockefeller Foundation reach out to me in regards to funding. Um, I am not a nonprofit. I am an individual who cares about the community, which is why I do this work, but I have foundations that reach out to me all the time based on my presence on social media, Facebook and Instagram specifically. They see the message that I put out there and then they reach out and they ask, how can we work with you? So for those of you who are not clear as to how social media can affect you moving forward, it does. 
Um, I get a lot of funding because of my online presence. And because of that, I try to slim down my message at times, and then I get called out on that by people of color. So it's like I'm trying to toe the road here and understanding that I'm reaching an audience that looks to me for information and for guidance and also funding opportunities. So it's like, how can you keep it real, as I've had a cousin to ask me, and understand that corporate America is watching at the same time, and they care very little about what you say outside of social media. But as it comes to social, as it comes, as it's, as this work pertains to social media, and I know that's a big part of this conversation, I will say, I would, I will say, put your message out there. Put your message out there of who you are, who you work with, and make sure that your message is clear because that's how foundations and companies will reach out to you and determine the value that they place on you, which is not always accurate. But if you are looking for funding sources, I would definitely say your presence on social media is being watched. And even when you don't recognize they're watching you, they are. It may not be that foundation's name, it may be a member of their board that's following you. So you are being watched, and if you care about being an influencer or whatever, especially for outdoor brands, such as North Face, REI, King, all these people have people watching influencers and they're watching what you're saying. If you dog somebody else out, they're watching that. If their intent was to reach out to you, to ask to work with you, that opportunity is gone based on what you said. So I want, I want to encourage everybody to be as honest as you can with who you are but also understand where you're looking to go. If you're looking to build a community for funding, act one way. If you're looking to be just militant as hell, be that way too. But understand the people that you are pushing aside when that's the message you want to put out there. But for me, on my secret account, I'm militant as hell. <laughs> So everybody has a face yeah. <laughs> yes. I only have one account. I'm doing one oh, okay. Uh, social media. Uh, what like, how do you use your social media? Oh, man, it depends on which one. Uh, Why does everybody so, have more than one Instagram? I'm just saying, Facebook, one way, Instagram, okay. another yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> mom in them, I get it. Yeah, so, you know, Facebook is... Uh, I, that's where most of like uh, my coworkers or people I work with, all that. That's where that that's reserved that for that stuff. And so, let's try to be positive, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, be positive on on that account, and that's that's how I do it. That Sir, you don't have to answer the question. I know how you get. <laughs> no, nah, nah, I don't have to answer the questions. <laughs> Where was you 20 minutes ago? Um, the question is, how do I push resiliency on my social media? How do you portray resiliency? Word. I think 
being black and alive is a special kind of resilience. So like every every picture, every video, um, I also think like there's there's some folks that have a responsibility or feel like they have a responsibility to speak on um, the the ways in which our bodies are politicized, uh, targeted, and enacted violence against. Um, so I think some some parts of that resilience is how we what we post has nothing to do with those things. Um, because like naturally, especially the the continent that we're on, um, being black carries these stories and these histories. So when we post pictures um, in the ocean, when we post shout out to you, nature, I see you. Um, we post pictures just eating food, laughing with each other, dancing. Um, that's a special uh, portrayal of resistance or resilience, which isn't necessarily different. Um, yeah, I think other folks like you get to decide um, how respectable you want to be. And that's what I when I when I think of editing so that other folks uh, receive you differently. I think of respectability because I think it's really important that you're authentic as often as you want to be. Um, and you get to decide how like at what point do you want to be real is this real and not that real. Um, there's definitely space for all of that. And I think the most important thing about being on social media is being authentic, so that the folks that connect with you are as authentic as you. So you're editing the message and the persona that you're putting out. The folks that are coming to you aren't attracted to who you are. They're attracted to that that thing that you've been posting. So the end. So I would like to add, just have good people around you, because good sharp iron sharpens iron, and then it all works out in the end. Um, so now it's time for question and answer. Anybody have any questions, Com comments, concerns, song lyrics? Yes, sir, Dr. Bayham. Yes, sir. Uh, with respect to white spaces, um, I know there was some mention about skin color difference. I would caution on that, and I'd love some feedback on that. My experience as somebody who's always been perceived as lighter skin, I say perceived because that's not a part of my identity structure, it's a big deal within black spaces, with white spaces. I'm, just, I'm still a nigger. I've always been one, <laughs> always. This, there's never been a difference. And then my question, oh, if you want to respond. I'll, I'll let you say anything you see. Oh, well, the, the question I had was that, so we're talking about resilience. Resilience theory for a long time was a big part of American Indian studies. And I know that we've had some, a lot of discussions <clears throat> that have made an ode to indigeneity. And I'm wondering for all of you um, about cross-cultural communications with American Indian activists, as well as with Latinx uh, activists, on this subject of um, resilience. Okay. Um, now, with regards to being black, um, yes, like, you know, we're all black, you know what I'm saying? Despite the shades or whatever, like I'm, I'm a mid-tone, so I'm like a, you know, I'm not like super light-skinned, but I'm not like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm, so, but there are also things that depending on the like degree of visibility to blackness, like like how visibly black you are, there are certain things that you will have to deal with. So Darius, who is more dark skinned than me, has definitely has more intense experiences. And then like with me, with my hair, like I'm a certain, I'm, you know, I'm like light skinned enough to where you can tell I'm black, but then like my hair texture is, is very coarse. So you can, I'm very visibly black. Whereas like someone who is more fair skinned, they could be they can choose to be ambiguous or maybe 
deny their blackness. But then in terms of colorism or colorism and its proximity to anti-blackness, that is global. So you can look at the Latinx community and see, you know, Afro-Latinx people, how they're treated. Or even like, you know I'm saying, like say like the Dominican Republic, where they rounded up, you know, the president in the 1900s rounded up all the dark-skinned people. And if you couldn't speak Spanish, they would kill you on spot. You know what I'm saying? So colorism is very much a real thing. If you go to Singapore, right, where, where the Chinese colonized, uh, you know what I'm saying, the Malay people and all these dark-skinned people, if you look at their manifesto, it was it was basically reiterating this this concept of white supremacy, whereas these, these more pale-skinned people, uh, you know, are more superior to these darker-skinned people. So I'm not really, you know, I'm just kind of, speaking on specificity or, you know trying to be you know specific on certain things but there's just different degrees of privilege in which things exist that everybody has to be mindful of and that's just what i want to talk about you know what i'm saying so um you know and there are people who like when you even when you're in white spaces some of your opposition will come from people who want to be in proximity to whiteness right so i was a i was a double major in college i, I double majored in black studies and then also in english and some of my biggest opposition will come from people who wanted to be in opposition to whiteness beyond just white people so it's like yes we're all black you know what i'm saying and we all have a myriad of experiences but there is also there it, there, there are also things that are very specific that have to be acknowledged as well because there are also you know like more palatable versions of uh of of what people you know prefer from certain types of people like that you know people you know, uh, so sometimes people selectively acknowledge their their privilege over certain folks. There's like a thing. There's like you know, I believe that there's selective misogyny and there's also selective anti-blackness. Like a, a a person who identifies as male can say that he respects women, but then he'll disrespect, you know, trans women or sex workers or plus size women or something like that. And that person will be like, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or that they value a black life, but it's usually a version that's more palatable to them, right? You know, so like people were saying, you know, uh, Justice for Nia Wilson, but then how do you treat people who fit that particular phenotype in your everyday life? You know what I'm saying? So that's more so what I'm speaking about. You have to be specific, and there are specific experiences that happen. And uh, yeah, I just want to pass the mic. <laughs> uh, one more question. Okay. I would like to point out that um, you didn't have to tell me you, were, you had a degree from the College of Ethnic Studies of San Francisco State. <laughs> <laughs> As somebody who graduated in class, class 2003, and I saw that train coming with all lights on. Okay, any, any other questions? One more question. Any question? Yes, sir. Yes, I have a, uh, Lisa, I have a question um, in regards to what you alluded to earlier about um, this campaign um, the outdoors and the outdoors experience as far as it pertains to black people. Um, I like that you mentioned, I believe it's outside afros. Outdoor <laughs> afros? Outdoor, outdoor afros. Um, I wanted to kind of allude to uh, we was looking about getting more, um, getting more black people excited or getting more black people interested in going outside and going about the outdoors. Um, personally, I think that there's um, a really bad attachment in terms of um, black people not wanting to go outside. Like Lamont mentioned, black, black people not wanting to go out to camping or out to the woods or even a deeper constitution to that being just for white people. That's for white folks. White right. people don't do that. We don't, we don't go outside. We don't go right. to the woods. We don't do that. So my question is, in what ways do you think we can kind of combat like that ongoing like fear for black people, like we don't like to go outside, and what we can do about like changing that? Yeah. So the question is, how do we reverse the stigma of black folks going outside? 
wouldn't that be like a trauma thing? Like you, you have to get over that trauma of being outside so long. Yeah. yeah. That. Yeah. Um, I acknowledge the history, African American history in the outdoors. Um, one of our greatest um, troopers, as I like to refer to to her, is um, Harriet Tubman, and how she led slaves through these outdoor spaces. So, which is why I say that these outdoor spaces aren't new to us. Historically, black people have been lynched in these spaces. These have been um, trails of escape for slaves. I understand that and I acknowledge that, but I also understand and acknowledge the Buffalo Soldiers, who were the first Rangers. First African-American superintendent at Sequoia Kings was an African-American by the name of Charles Young. So to continue to allow history to keep us away from these spaces that belong to people of color mm -hmm. is, is, a, is doing a disservice to those who came before us. They fought so that these spaces, that we would be comfortable in these spaces as well, which is why I do that work. Understanding that we are on a lonely land right now understanding that Latinos, understanding that there are 450 Buffalo soldiers laid to rest at the Presidio in San Francisco that people aren't aware of. It is my responsibility in honor of those who came before us to make sure those stories do not go untold. So that's part of the reason I do this work. And yeah, there are some scary moments in the outdoors. But if we go as a collective and we learn as a collective, we understand that the more people put a negative spin on these spaces, the longer we will refrain from being in these spaces. So I think it's important to understand your history, understand our history in these spaces, but to not allow that to be the reason we don't go. These spaces are serenity. And for me, they are. They're spiritual. <coughs> you don't have to go far. You could go to Oakland Hills and experience redwoods. Mm -hmm. We live right here at the Pacific Ocean and kids in San Francisco have never seen the ocean. No. Kids that live here in Oakland have never been to the Oakland Hills because that's where white folks live. <coughs> so the more we tell these stories of why we shouldn't, the longer we go from telling our history and our connection to the land. All right, now. Fine, OK. <laughs> and Amy's going, too. We're all going. All right. So is Nina. Okay. Thank you for coming. Um, I think one performances. performances are next. Yes. yes. By uh, first Demarian. First Demarian. Thank you so much. Thank you. For sure. How much time we got? I don't want to go over too much time. Okay. I'll, I'll make it quick. Everybody hear me okay? Yeah. Great. Um, my name is Demarion. No, hopefully. Uh, this one is called Information. It's just about the importance of knowing things because if you don't know anything, you can be told anything, and it's very important to just know things and know yourself and all of that. So <clears throat> now, 
A rose can't grow if you limit the water it receives. If you control what a person knows, you can mold what they believe. If you diminish the education of the underprivileged and poor, this creates an expectation that crime of entry level occupation is all that life has in store. If you raise the rich to be sophisticated and superfluity, anything foreign to their familiarities is forlorn. This disables their opportunity to be aware of cultures and communities different from the one in which they were born. If you teach a man to hate the color of his skin, though made in God's image, his cultural identity is smothered by hatred of oneself and others, backstabbing one's own brothers in the pursuit of privilege. Like water helps in cultivation of every single rose, people are products of information to which they are exposed. Thank you. And, um, and this one is called the notion of rudiment. Can everybody still hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Um, so that one was part of an older collection of poems called Looking Forward. And this one is part of a newer collection of poems called Blemish that I hopefully have done very soon. Okay. So, and it's just about like the importance of like beginning and, and starting. Like, you know, uh, no journey is perfect. And understanding that as long as you are starting, as long as you, the most important thing is to start, and the most important thing is, is to, to put your foot forward on the journey, you know what I'm saying, regardless of how long it takes or whatever. So, <clears throat> now, is it truly gratifying to be fulfilled in an instant? Is it possible for a person to have answers when they have taken but a step on the cobblestone, leading to the wilderness which breeds curiosity? Is it passionate to speak with the intensity of Illinois midsummer when your thoughts are budding violet? Is it love to shower the soil of others, tilting the garden spout farther than pillars of wood which shield your heart while standing in the midst of guileless sprouts unversed in the language of care? Is it truly naive to appreciate brevity? Is life the arable land from which rare delicacies are chosen, flourishing on occasion yet perishable if not consumed? Is it the uncertainty of time that urges the youthful hand into the burgeoning crop field, its cantaloupes not yet ripened, its cherimoyas sour in taste though ever fleeting as autumn waves gently from afar, informing you that everything is impermanent? Thank you. And that's it. <laughs> hey y'all. Hey. Oh yeah. We meet again without a table and a mic. Um yeah, again, my name is Darius Simpson and I too have books. This is a book I put out last year. It's called The Bridge Theory. I always feel kind of weird going into the bag because the unzip is always epic on the stage. I feel like I should have some something more than a book inside. Like, I don't know. That was just a side note. It has nothing to do with anything. Um, you like a magician? I just start pulling shit up. Uh, yeah, the poem I'm going to do is from page, I think, 79 in there. Uh, and it's about dancing in black boys. I learned how to moonwalk next to a vacuum. And I still take steps back when life sucks. In sixth grade, I thought that my body was a sermon. So I learned how to pray with my feet. Back when dance was the only religion we knew, I was baptized while sliding backwards at a talent show.
And at 12 years old, I thought this was worship. But my mother said it was training. She said, when you black, rhythm is both how you prepare for battle and recover from the war zone. She told me if I keep moving, that I can learn how to dodge bullets if I practiced hard enough. By the time my father showed me his scars from breakdancing, I had already learned the choreography of a traffic stop. I became a performer. Whenever the red and blue lights flashed in my rearview mirror, I knew my lines. I knew how to keep my hands visible in case of combustion, how the wrong move might lead to me never dancing again. The day a cop told me I didn't belong in the neighborhood I grew up in, my tongue was a wet fuse, my voice a pinned grenade, my fists were nuclear missiles, this cop's mouth pressing launch codes. He wanted to see how many words it would take to cause a chain reaction. He wanted me to explode on the side of the road so we could make a street sign out of my shrapnel. He wanted my mother to have to come down to the sidewalk that night to identify what was left of me so instead, so instead I smiled. I figured it was best that we both make it home in one piece. But that night, I danced in an empty parking lot for two hours just to avoid detonating. And I think, I think all us black boys fall into bomb making this way as an attempt to defuse a weapon we wear every day. Black boys dance to show that our bloodstream is jet fuel, to prove that our spines be rocket ship, that at any moment we could blast off and leave this whole planet behind us. Besides, what threat could America make against a body that has already proven it will blow up on command? The next time y'all see a black boy shake so hard, you think his back's broken, consider that we break our own bones just to prove we're still in control of them. Consider viral videos of black boys dancing, a reclaiming of land we was told was never ours to begin with. Don't ask why y'all always dancing. Ask what kind of country makes its people feel like they're safer when moving? We dance because being black is stressful. We dance because we got lives to live. We dance because after a long day, sometimes defying gravity is the only rebellious thing our bodies have time to do. We dance because you can't hit what you can't catch. Our dance is alluding to war zone. Our dance is an armed resistance. Our dance is a form of combat. Ever so often, I have flashbacks to the battles when the bass is loud enough to make me forget that I'm not a soldier anymore, or the music is recruitment enough for me not to care. In those moments, I remember the living room that I turned into a training camp, make my limbs into a bomb shelter, and let the beat blow me away.